I want to strict press the world record. Um, and so I'm not going to take a log of records like I can strict it. I was just like, I'm going to go on this journey and just see where it ends. And then I've taken it way past the world record. And now I'm like setting my sights on this 200 kilo strict log. So for me, I've removed my ceiling. Can someone that doesn't compete be considered the best? I'm pretty sure we'd all say the answer to that question is no, right? On this episode, I'm talking with Shane Germain, and after listening, you might change your mind about how cut and dry the answer to that question really is. I've been putting off preparing this episode, sure, because I'm busy with so many other things, but mostly because it just felt so daunting. It brought up a lot of questions I have about this sport and just competition in general. I kept finding myself with new ideas I wanted to cover. I wanted to have answers to all these questions, to make all the ideas nice and tidy, all wrapped up in perfect little sound bites. In the end, though, I've decided to leave our conversation unedited, complete with my own ramblings that are meant to be questions, but never really ask anything, to just present the record of all these ideas coming to life. And honestly, Shane's just a really good talker, so there wasn't much for me to do anyway. In this episode, we talk about a lot of things. His early strongman journey, the path that led him to be one of the best strongman coaches there is, in my opinion. How it can be argued that he's one of the strongest 90s ever? And how some white-collar crime prevented him from entering America and proving it. What's in store for the future of the sport and why strongman is really a form of art more than anything else? Um, hold on, let me, let me get a chair too, just in case I want to sit down. While Shannon and Shay were out grabbing ingredients to make a full English breakfast, we sat in his kitchen in Morecambe and had this conversation. Or I could walk, up, walk around too. Shannon always kicks off because I like to sit on the left side chair. And then she has to pull the right side chair around the whole way. Oh, because she pulls it around, yeah, where you could have just sat in that one and she was. Yeah, but I don't. I, didn't I don't think got, of it. Um, I don't know if that's an autistic trait or something. I don't know, but just, I have to sit on the end. Do you think you're autistic? Uh, I think everybody's a little bit on the spectrum, aren't they? So it's like I think I've got everyone's got some certain traits of it. Yeah, yeah. I got. I think I got. I think I got the some good traits of it though. I don't think it, it's a negative. Well, I, maybe Shannon to say different. But. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the good traits of autism for you? Like the 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 fact that I, I can't. I, I'm obsessed with a couple of subjects. And that's just, I'm just hyper-focused on them, which to me is a good thing because I just, if anything's outside of my realm, I'm just like, like it, it does not interest me in the slightest. Even if I want to be interested because somebody's telling me about something, I'm just like, my brain just, it comes straight in and then it just kind of like jumbles out a polite answer like, yeah, yeah, cool. And then five seconds later, it is gone. Whereas if someone's talking about something strength and conditioning related, I am like, absorbing and saving every single piece of useful information that I can. And I think that's a, I think that's an autistic trait. Um, so yeah, so, but I see it as a positive, but Shannon can sometimes say it's a little bit of a negative because I just don't really do anything apart from this. <laughs> apart from this. I, I was, I was, well, I was talking to Joe Skull last night and he said he, you say that he is always trying to trip you up. 
And he says he just happens to have, he's like, I'll have this really specific, you know, question about a person like this with this and this and this and this. And he says, it's just, you immediately have an answer. Because we were watching the video that um, you did with, or you and Shannon did with, with me and my scapula and serratus and all that stuff in the Trap 3. And it was just, I was just looking at, you know, watching it mind blown. And I was showing Shay and saying it was really fucking cool. Like in person in real time, he was just looking at this and this and how this moves and that. And then that's when Joe said, he's always doing that to you. You immediately always have an answer. Yeah. He just comes over it like, oh, Shane. And then just like, and I've been walking to the gym with a bag on my shoulder and he'll come out of the world's most complex, <laughs> complex question. And uh, I'll just be like, well, I'll just answer it for him. And then he goes away like... Yeah, it always looks like mind blowing. I'm like, oh, it's just S and C. <laughs> well, that's the thing about information, right? Is like all the information in the world is only as useful as your ability to recall it and to put it into action. So the ability to retain all the information firstly and then understand how two seemingly disparate things sort of relate to each other. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm good at by accident because at first people told me this and I didn't feel, I didn't really, I don't, I don't know. You're just, kind of, you're just kind of doing your thing, aren't you? And people tell you, oh, you're really good at explaining. Like basically, I get told that I'm very good at explaining complex things in a simple way. Um, But that just could be because I'm fucking not all there and I don't really fully under, well, the thing is I fully understand the concepts behind the, the details and what I'm doing, but I liked, I just, I just go, oh, so what really what you mean is this, this, and this. And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, why don't you just fucking say that? Uh, and then I remembered the simple side so that it makes it easy to recall. Um, and, and with S&C, if you simplify stuff, it's it really is quite simple and it's not that difficult to recall information. Whereas if you wanted to recite every single technical term and intricacy it's like extremely complex but you, you don't really need that stuff so people tell me i'm good at simplifying stuff but i just see it as like well i don't understand why you wouldn't simplify it because it's you know th these crazy subjects that are just so complex can be turned into like this one sentence that does the outcome you're looking for um and i've always done that so that's why when Joe asks me these hyper complex questions and I give him a five word answer, he goes away like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, understanding everything on the back end for you is sort of, yeah, the foundational thing. But then when you're telling it to someone else, you don't need to tell them everything. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I understand the background stuff. It's just, if I was, I could, sometimes I would need to like, sometimes I need to refresh myself to, if I was to get it exact, like if somebody was asking me to educate them, I'd be like, right, I'm going to teach you this thing. I'm just going to quickly refresh my memory. And I'd quickly, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Because there's certain things like dig certain degrees and stuff that I'll remember, you know, circa and things like that. But for the most part, everything's um, easy to remember when you simplify it. Like the scapula stuff. It, it sounds complicated, but it's, it's not, that, not that complicated, really. Like 95% of people's overhead issues are what we talked about with you serratus work, trap free work, pet minor work. And when you talk about how the scapula moves, it sounds a little bit complicated, but then maybe when you saw the uh, videos of how the, it kind of, as soon as you start seeing it, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So when you can visualize it, you can simplify stuff and just be like, yeah, strengthen your serratus, trap free, and then lengthen your pet minor, and it does this thing. 
And then when you see it happen, it's really easy to visualize it. But you can, there's loads of other terms that you can use for what I explained, which would make it seem like an absolute clusterfuck. Um, um, but but really it's free, simple, free, simple movements. Um, so I don't tell people the full spiel because you just don't need, you just don't need to know half the stuff in S and C. Um, but obviously as a coach, you need to, you need to know it to, to be able to teach it and simplify it. I've never really thought about this until now that you're just saying it. Um, I don't know if you have an opinion on it or not, or if it matters, but as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, if you do spend your time saying things in the most complicated way, it sounds like you're really, especially if you're saying stuff, you know, on the internet, it sounds like you're just making sure everyone knows that you really do know. Because if you say something really simply, even if you're right, you know, it doesn't sound as um, smart or whatever as the person who will like break it the fuck down. Well, I just think the best people in any field in life just go through the journey of basically they're doing it simple because they don't understand it. And it's like simple and wrong. And then they get to the point where they start understanding it more and it becomes like really complicated and kind of right. And then the next part is it's really complicated, but it's right. And then once they spend a bit of time there, it just becomes super fucking simple and right. And it's just kind of like the journey of a strength coach. Cause I've been there in the past as well, where I would, even though I could explain it simply, I wanted people to know that I, what I knew. So I would just fucking come out with this full, bloody encyclopedia of information but then you just realize that nobody even can intake that information and they don't they can't do anything with it so it's useless almost um there'll be like one percent of your audience that that are in strength and conditioning coaches that be like oh that's cool um but if you're wanting to do something and make an impact in like a sport like what i'm working in then you need to make it so that you understand your audience. And that's kind of like what I'm, I'm good at as well. I understand my audience. I, I live in the strongman world. So I know how to speak to a strongman and, and get them to be like, oh shit, that's me. Um, oh, if I do those things, I'll fix this thing. Whereas if I come out with some max complicated sentence that half the words they've got to Google, you're not really achieving anything with, with regards to your reach, are you? But I don't know, it's rambling shine. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes sense. Um, I never, well, with anything, with learning anything, you can't learn it all at once. You have to learn and then apply and then go to sleep at night, right? That's when, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. when like the neural stuff starts to make the real connections. When I was playing piano, um, I would practice over and over and over or skateboarding. I would do a trick over and over and over and over. And I would just like fucking, like it would get so, it would start to get better throughout the day and then it would like just sort of plateau and it wouldn't go anywhere and I'd just drill it over and over and over and over. I'd go to sleep and the next day, just nail it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, so sometimes as well with, um, doing those things, you kind of get to the point where you have to just step away for a bit and then come back with like a bit of a fresh mindset towards it as well. Um, and it's the same with, with learning as well. Like sometimes you're trying to learn a subject and you read and read and read and it's just not going in and then you go away and sometimes don't even think about it. And then randomly it'll just pop into your head and you'll be like, oh fuck, I understand it now. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's a bit of a weird one. Yeah, and, and then also needing the information is the only reason you would retain it. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll do like Photoshop or something 
And I could take a course on Photoshop and learn every single possible thing that it can do, but it doesn't make any sense because I would never use half the shit. I just wait until there's one thing I need and I Google how to do that one thing and then I'll remember it. And yeah. then I'll forget it later. I have to Google it again. <laughs> Everything I've learned in strength conditioning is just, it started off as for me and then kind of just turned into like, now I'm coaching. It's like, oh, my athlete needs this. So I'll be like, right, I've got to fucking learn that. And then once you learn it for one athlete, it kind of crops up again in the future and you're like, oh, I know this. And then, uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's just kind of how, how I've learned is by uh, just like getting a, a, finding a problem and then just researching the solution. So everything I've always learned is always, I can apply it to my job because it's been for a specific reason, either to fix something on me or to fix something on an athlete or to change his position or something. It's always for like an outcome. And then it becomes super useful. And I prefer learning like that because I've done S and C qualifications and stuff and all, all sorts of things. And half of it's not applicable. So it's like, you're just learning stuff for the sake of learning stuff. And then it's hard to retain it because you never do it. Whereas stuff I, I learn now is like, I pretty much use everything literally every week. So it's easy to recall it as well when you just do it all the time. Um, and it's easy to get better at your craft because you're not just learning something it and it's sitting in your brain for six months and randomly crops up. It's like you learn something and then every week you're like, oh, I can use that. Oh, I can use that. And then you kind of get better and better at it. Yeah, so that was sort of the next thing I want to sort of ask, I guess, is... Um yeah, what's the, what's the, in any way you want to say it, whether it's a short or long, I mean, talk about anything. Um, what's the journey from sort of hobbyist to athlete to strength coach? Because you talk about your audience, so I'm curious who you think your audience is. Like, who, who is your audience to you? Who, is, who are the people you're talking to? But there must have been a point where you're your own audience, you were just doing strongman. But now you're, you know, one of if not the best strongman coaches. So how, how do you go from one to the other? Well, it's a long story. <laughs> do you want me to just go for it all? Every single time. All right, fair enough. Well, may as well just fucking start from scratch. So basically... From literally as young as I can remember, I've been an athlete. So I swam, I was a good swimmer, I did kickboxing, I did fucking karate, jujitsu, I did basically everything from like a young age. And I was always like, I've just always been that guy that's good at stuff. So like swimming, I was supposed to go on like the national swimming team, but I hated swimming. So my parents finally allowed me to quit. So I never did that. I won like British championships and kickboxing under 16s from 12 to like 16. I think I went like every year or something. And then again, I quit when I, when I got to 16 because I was only doing this stuff because I kind of got told you're doing it. And then when I was 16, they're like, right, we're not paying for it anymore. You don't have to go. And I was like, finally. <laughs> uh, but then I, I started training at like 16 and then um, met a guy called Ben France, who he's won Masters, Strongest Man, UK's Masters a few times. He's just a bit of an old school strongman. Um, I went to a strongman gym at like 17. And um, yeah, I loaded like a 100 kilo stone and clean and pressed a 90 kilo log and did some random stuff like my first time. And I had all these guys like, wow, you know, you're really good. You should probably 
try this. Um, so I entered England's Strongest Man qualifiers like about eight, nine months later when I was 18, uh, under 90s. It was the first year they did under 90s in the UK as well. And I qualified to um, Northern's under 90. Uh, no, sorry, I qualified from Northern's under 90 to England's under 90. And that's kind of where the strongman obsession kind of came from because I was like, oh, this is cool. I'm doing an England's Strongest Man. And it kind of sounded... I know, it's just like a cool title, isn't it? And it was something to put my energy into after quitting all those other sports. But then be before that, I'd, I'd got into weight training uh, just to get bigger. And it was just something that, I don't know, I just got so obsessed with it from like the moment that I um, started. I just literally would sit online reading um just fucking all day. I just was just obsessed with it. I still am now to be honest with you, but back then I was like, it was just, there was just anything I read was new. So I just was like learning and I'd try all these mad training programs and stuff. And I just got really obsessed with it. And then I started working in the gym as well. So like my whole, at this point in time from like 17 onwards, I just was like gym. Like that's the only thing I cared about. It's the only thing I thought about. It's the only thing I wanted to do. And I was like, I'm going to be the strongest person ever under 90. I was like finding the weightlifters that were, uh, you know, because basically in Strongman, I was like, I don't know what the standard is because back then in under 90, there was like no one doing it. It wasn't a thing. So I was like, well, who the fuck's the strongest under 90s in the world? So I'd look at the weightlifters. Uh, I'd look at the powerlifting total records and stuff. And I'd be like, I was like, right, shit, I need some catching up to do. So I'd start learning all these weightlifting training methods, all these powerlifting things and just kind of just training and training and training. And then as I got better at Strongman, over the years, I did the qualifiers, like I competed, like I did about 10, 15 comps a year, every year for about six years straight. So I do the Northern qualifiers for the nineties every year, the 105s every year as well. When the 80 scene first came about, I was the first British strongest man under 80. So I kind of like just kept doing the UK scene and learning and learning and learning and always learning and doing qualifications and just, I was learning to get better. I didn't really think about coaching, to be honest with you. I just wanted to be the best athlete I could be. And back then, the on, there wasn't online coaching, you know what I mean? I couldn't be like, fuck, I want to hire a coach. It just wasn't a thing. So the only way to, to, to program really was just to learn. So that's just basically what I was doing this whole time was just being an athlete, being obsessed with getting better, so learning, and then going and applying what I'd learned in the gym and doing that for like just so many years, it, you, the coaching thing just kind of naturally happened because people would just people would just naturally gravitate towards me in the gym because they'd ask me questions and I'd answer them and then they'd go apply what I said and oh fuck that worked and I'd ask him some other shit. So then it just kind of like happened. And I was lucky because in where I'm from in Morecambe, there's just a lot of freaks. So we've got like Graham Hicks. So like I helped Graham with his training for like years. Uh, ben, obviously, Paul Smith used to train um, down here as well. Uh, Luke Davies used to train with us from Chaos. You know, it wasn't as if I was training with just like random people. It was like people that have been in the sport a long time. They're still in the sport now. They're now helping grow the sport and stuff. So all the people that I was kind of like around and surrounding myself with have all gone on to be kind of 
good coaches as well and influence the sport in different ways. So we were always bouncing ideas off each other and learning, trying different stuff. And basically everything that we tell people not to do now is just shit that we learned by <laughs> doing it excessively. So yeah, it, it's kind of like, in short, the, the competing side of things was what got me into coaching really was just being obsessed with getting better and learning and growing as an athlete. And then I, I, I guess I, it's just a sub, sometimes you just gel with stuff in life. I just understand this very well. And I can read and because I understand the physiological and neurological side of stuff as well, I can read things like training programs and stuff and understand exactly the adaptation process that's going on, which makes it really easy to like understand programming principles because I did the background kind of academic stuff as well. Uh, which means that the coaching side just naturally fell into my hand because it was just easy. Like it was just easy. Like people's problems to me were simple problems that I'd fixed on myself loads of times and kind of learned six different ways to like fix my lower back or whatever. So then uh, someone comes in and I'm like, oh, try this. It doesn't work, right, we'll try that. It doesn't work, I'll try that. Oh, that one worked, sweet. There you go, fuck off. And then it, it just kind of, and then they come back like, oh, Shane, I've got this problem now. So no one's been able to fix it. So it just kind of like fell into my, my hands. And then I got, um, the kind of big turning point with the coaching thing was I, <laughs> I, I committed a little crime. I did, uh, I did, it was a little bit naughty, you know, I did some, uh, I sold some data is what I sold. I had access to some data and someone wanted the data for cash. I kept selling it and then I got caught, I got sacked. And then I was on a suspended sentence for like four years or something. So I couldn't get a job. So I was basically like, couldn't get a job, skin and thought, fuck it. I'm gonna try to do this coaching thing full time. Cause I was kind of doing it on the side a little bit anyway. But that kind of moment in my life made me just go all in on the coaching. And then, yeah, that the only difference really between me doing it part-time on the side hustle and doing it full-time was just my mindset towards, right, this is going to be how I make money now, that's my career. Um, and, and then I just jumped in and started the coaching. And then again, it just steamrolled because it, it, it steamrolled fast for me because I was good, I guess, because I'd get like a couple of clients and then a couple of clients turn into a handful of clients and they turn into 20 clients. And it's like, suddenly there's a big rush of people like, look, fuck, I want to work with you. And then it just kind of like grew pretty rapid to be honest with you. And then I knew nothing about business either. So I've winged the whole business side of stuff over the years. I just got better at it. And then growing it into the MST brand today has just been me basically completely winging it and just going with the flow and just seeing like like the first coach I hired Flash because he just mentioned to me like would you ever consider me coaching for you and I was just like oh fuck it yeah why not <laughs> and, then, and then and then now he's like the one of the head coaches for the company so again it's just been like it just the coaching side of stuff's been me the business side's been me winging it and just literally the only fallback I have is I know I'm good at my job so I know that the information that people get in the program, people get really good. So that's always been something that's helped grow the business because even though I didn't know what the fuck I was doing with the business side of stuff, no one was ever going to leave because they're like, well, I'm happy with what I'm getting, you know, I'm getting stronger. The service is good. So it allows me to like, kind of think like, right, where do I want to go now? I don't need to worry about regression. 
I can just worry about going forward. And that's when we started getting other coaches in and stuff and, and whatnot. But the, yeah, it's been a weird journey going from athlete to coach. But like I say, it just kind of like naturally like went that way, to, to be honest with you. Um, I get that's the, that's the condensed version of it, but you know, there, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so, well, let's just step back a little bit with the crime bit. We don't have to go deep into it, but it sort of occurs to me that, well, it's, it's actually really interesting to hear that bit related with the coaching bit and how those two things sort of one led to the other. You can't get a job, so you need to go all in on this thing that you were kind of doing on the side. I think that's a lot of people's stories with certain things. I was doing this thing because I loved it. And then the thing that made me money kind of went away and I realized, oh shit, I have to like go full in on this other thing because I have no other choice. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people would want to know or people would be curious about why they never see you compete because it's, it's, it's odd, I think, to see a coach that's so good at coaching who also seems to be so good at the sport that they coach still. Like you're still like progressing as an athlete, but it's almost hard to call you an athlete because you don't compete, right? Um, so yeah, does the, 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 maybe not with the crime bit, but I imagine that has something to do with competing. Yeah, the competition stuff, <clears throat> it, It's there's so many factors to it, I'll be honest with you. Because there's so many things that, that stop me competing. There's so many like stories and things that have happened. So, yeah, it's like, like for example, the, 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 I can, I always from 18 till, because I competed up till like 24 or 25 or something. So I compete like seven years. I've done like over a hundred comps. So when people say to me, why don't you compete? I'm like, oh, you know, yeah, I don't know what to say. I have to have, like, I've got a lot of titles. Uh, I just, yeah, but, but, but anyway, one of the things was I tread this sport. I, I was one of them people that I got into the sport very young and I identified for a long time as a strong man. It's the only thing I knew. It's the only thing I thought about. It, I woke up and thought about how to get stronger today. Right. I'm going to eat my meals. I've got everything planned out. I was just like obsessive. And, a lot of the things that happened to me over the years of competing because the sport was so small was I felt like I was being treated like just like some random hobbyist. You know what I mean? I can't, like, for example, right, there was in, the, the last time I did an under 80 comp, I did English Strongest Man under 80 kilos. And this was in 2016 or something, maybe 2017, it was around then. And I was like, right, it's going to be my last time at 80. I'm going to set a world log record and a world deadlift record. And I want to set two records that just stand for years. And in training, I was around about a 350 deadlift and a 150 log. And then I, I, I did my prep. I was about 84 kilo, 85 kilo. About a week out, the the promoter changed the weigh-in from 24 hours to two hours. Um, after like weeks went by, I found out that he just couldn't be bothered Literally, he couldn't be bothered to come in the day before early because the gym, it was like the comp was on a Sunday or something and the gym opened at like 12 on a Saturday and he didn't want to do weighing at like fucking eight or something. So a week out, we we got told it's not a 24-hour weigh-in. I shouldn't have done an under-80 comp on a two-hour weigh-in. I just shouldn't have done it. 
but I've prepped 12 weeks for it. I've dieted down. I'm fucking peeled lean. I'm fucking, I'm doing it. You know what I mean? You know what the athlete mindset's like. You don't take anything else into consideration apart from doing the job. Anyway, I'm like, right, fuck it. Let's just get it done. I'll do my best. I said to, uh, I was chatting with someone and somebody said to me, oh, just so you know, mate, um, he doesn't have a deadlift bar. And, and I checked, like, do you have a deadlift bar? He's like, yeah, I've got a deadlift bar. I'm like, right, okay. So I also found I didn't have a deadlift bar. So I had to bring my own bar to this comp. And I turned up and I was like, mate, you, this, this isn't a deadlift bar. He's like, oh, you could deadlift on it. And I remember, him, I remember him saying that. And I was just like, oh my fucking God. Like you and me are on different like planets right now as to this, this comp. Anyway, so I pulled my deadlift bar out of the car and I was like, we're using this fucking bar for the thing. In that competition, the first event was Max Log. He had a 10 inch log. So I couldn't even set the log world record because it wouldn't count because it was the wrong log. So I ended up just doing a 120 kilo log to win the event. And there was no point doing any heavier because it doesn't fucking, it doesn't matter. It didn't have the right log. Um, so that, so that, that annoys me to this day because I think the record's still like 143 or something. And I used to press like 150 or 80. Just, it was just like my log. I was kind of like around there. I always struggled to get past it at that body weight, but I was always around 150. So I never set that record. And then for the deadlift record, I was it was like third event or something. I was cramping because I was not hydrated properly from this two hour weigh-in. Um, I was fucking dying. I, I pulled this world deadlift record at 320. I wanted 340 because at the time the under 90 record was 337. And I wanted to do the under 809 in the same pull. Anyway, I fucking failed it. It was because again, I pulled 320, but the, the, the guy came second, pull like 250 or something. So they were like, right, pull 270, right, right pull 300, right, pull 320. I'm like, can I have fucking five minutes here? They were like, I like one minute rest. Basically this comp's an absolute shambles. And I come away from this competition thinking, I have literally just put 12 weeks of my life into this prep, dieted down, gone through a record and been shown zero respect on the day. And that was one of the final nails in the coffin for me, that competition that really pissed me off. I was, I still, if you can't tell, I still, hold a slight grudge to this day because it pissed me off and that was one of the reasons why in i decided in this country i'm not competing anymore because the under 90 scene is just the same the under 90 scene they don't do 24 hour weigh-ins because they fucking just decide oh we do one hour weigh-ins over here it's just strong man they change events two or three days out the kit's shite like i made log pads to bring log pads into this sport. I didn't make log pads to get rich. I fucking basically lost money on the things. But I under 90 ovens would be log off one tire in the middle of the log. It's it's a joke. So I just basically refused to compete in the UK because I was like, the effort I put in is not reflected by the standard of the competitions that the promoters are putting on. Obviously Luke Davies and official strongman and stuff are here now. Things are getting a lot better. But for the last five years, that's been the case in the UK. So that's why I decided I ain't competing in the UK anymore. I'm fucking done. Um, and I'm still glad with that decision because every time I see these competitions, I'm like, they're a fucking shambles still. Um, hopefully next year with Luke taking over, you know, that changes. But um, still, to like I say, Northern, Northern England's strongest man, uh, under 90, had like five entries this year. A top five qualify. You know what I mean? It's a fuck because no one wants to do it because it's shite. Um, so I said, I'm not doing that anymore. I was like, I'm only going to compete international. I'm an international level competitor. I'm going to compete international. Obviously got banned from going fucking America because of my crime. So I, I, this year I got my visa this year. So like six months ago, I got my visa. So from 2016 or whatever, maybe 2015, 
No, 2015, I got the, the crime was in. So from 2015 till now, I've not been able to get into America. I can now. So that's why I've never competed international because OSG is always in America. I can get into America. Um, and, and that's really why I've not competed because I just didn't see the fucking point. There's also the other aspect of back when I competed, there was this guy called James Ward, which most people are never going to know him. Um, he's the brother, twin brother of Rob Ward. A lot of people know Rob Ward. Rob Ward was extremely dominant in under 90 kilo strongman. Well, I'm sure Rob won't mind me saying, James is a freak. James was, in my opinion, still to this day, Oh no, I, I think I'm stronger than James. No, actually, that's a lie. <laughs> but James to this day, I actually, yeah, yeah, I've, 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 I've passed you, James. I'm sorry, but it took me ten years. But you know, um, James to this day, he came into under ninety scene when it was the smallest. You know, it was there was hardly anyone in it really. Um, but he came in with the wildest proprioception, kinesthetic awareness, strength, everything that I've ever seen in my entire life. And because the level and standard he set was so high, I was like, fuck, if I'm going to beat this guy, I need to like really make some drastic changes. So I decided to leave the sport to get better basically for a couple of years. Um, I made a couple of comebacks in the time I left. Like I came back for Britain's under 80 and I won Britain's under 80. I came back for Northern England's strongest man under 90 kilos a couple of times because I liked saying I'm the strongest in the North. Four times England's strongest man, Northern England's strongest man under 90, strongest under 90 in the North ever. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I came back a few times just to win a couple of titles, but I never went to the Englands uh, after I won the Norths because I was like, fuck you, I'm not competing there. Um so I came back a few times, but yeah, I, I took this time away to get better, to, to to get to the standard of James Ward. You know, the under 90 kilo log record, 167 by Rob Ward. Um, that was 166 by James Ward, I think, for like fucking 10 years or something. He did a 166 log in like 2000 and fucking 10 or something. <laughs> like, he's wild. That's wild that it lasted that long and only got raised by one kilo. Yeah, it's insane. And this is the thing, he could have done way more. He just, he got injured. He got, he ended up getting his spine fused, I think. He got injured, but he was like a freak. Like, he was so fat. He used, to, he was the only undernight I've ever seen that would turn up and win every single event at like British Strongest Man. Um, I remember one year at Britain's Strongest Man, I beat him on like a couple of events. Like I beat him on Stones once. And I remember being like, oh, fuck, I beat fucking James Warren Stones. I'm the greatest stone lifter of all time. <laughs> uh, just be, And then he'd, he'd lose like one point in the whole comp. <laughs> and, you'd, and you'd be like, but yeah, that's why I went, that's one of the reasons why I went away. And I'm really grateful to James because he put a standard of under 90 kilo strongman in my brain that still to the, no offense to the under 90s now, but still to this day, nobody is as good as James Ward. Like, I promise you that. If you just look at James Ward online, he's insane. Like the guy is wild. Um, and I'm very thankful that I was able to compete against him and he set this standard in my head about like how good an athlete you can be at under 90 because he didn't have a single weakness and he was just feral strong especially overhead. Like his overhead was insane. I seen him once like do this, um, it was like an online challenge they had. Like how much can you clean and press overhead on your knees? So you just 
Kneeling, clean, clean, clean it from your knees as well. So you, you're down on your knees and you got pickets, your shoulders are pressing. Guess what it did? I mean, well, it's got to be some sort of reverse curl to get it up to the shoulders in the first place, right? So I couldn't imagine if you said 100 kilos, it would blow my mind. 120. Fuck off. He's wild. That's crazy. How? He's wild. And then like about, um, I remember him doing this thing where it was like, they had another, they had some other thing where it was like in, in a comp, they had like a max barbell cleaning press, but you could belt clean it. And he was like, oh, I've never done this belt clean thing before. And then he just like picked 170 up, put on his belt, cleaned it and just push pressed it. And, and then I was just like, <laughs> I was like, you are wild. These are all on YouTube still, like, because you just like filmed on a potato on YouTube from 2010 or something. James James Ward, just type in James Ward's drama and you see fucking, yeah, but he literally, um, and then his, his when he quit, his twin brother Rob started. So I competed against Rob a few times, but, but this is when he was first starting before he got to like his peak. And Rob, when he was at his peak, very much was a very similar athlete to James. Um, but I always felt like Rob was like this little bit down from 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 James uh, personally. No offense, Rob, still a freak. Like one world, like three times something, didn't he? But but James set this standard from my initial introduction as to right. You need to get if you want to be the best in the world, you need to get this good. So so I went away from the sport for a long while to basically learn shit. Like like I didn't. I went away and I weightlifted for two years, for example, because I wanted to master a barbell. I went away and did powerlifting. I went away and did CrossFit. I went, I, I went away and mastered all these different things because I wanted to be the best athlete possible. And I just had this, I had this like vision standard in my brain that I was like, when I get here, I'm going to come back and no one's going to be even close to me. And I got there like fucking four or five years ago and then just haven't been able to um, go international to, to showcase anything. And if anything, I've probably regressed since back then because my fucking knees fucked but <laughs> I mean I'm stronger but like my body's just not quite there anymore so so yeah that's kind of like that's kind of why I stopped competing like I say it's multifactorial really there's there's a good couple of reasons the UK scene is a big factor why because like I say if the UK scene was good I would have still been doing the English strongest mans and the Britons and all this but yeah. I refuse I refuse do you think it's possible for anyone to actually, and, and I'll qualify my question because I think the answer seems obvious, but I'll tell you my thinking. Do you think it's possible for anyone to actually, you know, when people say they're only competing against themselves, you know, me personally, I, I, I would never have said that because I don't care. All I want to be is better than whoever I'm around. And, you know, whoever my immediate surroundings is, is, and my immediate surroundings is every strong man I know on Instagram. So I want to be better than all of them. I, I, I want to be the best in the world, you know? So I, and I don't want, it's not me competing against myself. It's me just wanting to be better than someone else. But a lot of people say I'm only competing against myself. But I keep thinking about, um, you know, different sports. Uh, Joe and I talked about it. Uh, Joe Sko and I talked about how if the videos that kids are watching that he makes, they think that that's possible their base level understanding of what's possible is the best thing in, that's ever happened, right? We just keep getting stronger. As, as a skateboarder, I watched videos in the 90s of the best skaters, and that's what I thought was the best. That's what I thought was possible, so that's what I did. Well, then people got better, and now the kids watch those videos, and they got, and like the level of skateboarding is just fucking insane. So w w when you say, you know, you wanted to be better than James, I totally understand that. I understand, like, I want to be better than that guy because that's the best one that I've seen. Um, 
it, it just seems like if we keep getting better, it sounds like no one actually is right. Because if, if like you take all the uh, expectations away, right. Cause we, we essentially give ourselves ceilings, right? You say, I want to be better than this guy. It's like, okay, well, why not way even way better than that? You know, it's not the best you can possibly be. It's just, you just want to get one higher rung on the ladder than someone else. So yeah, I guess I don't know what my question is, but do you know what I mean? Like, I wonder if you could take the expectation of where you wanted to be away, what is sort of the true human potential? And it almost seems like that's impossible to do because we necessarily need to just be one step better than whatever we think the best is. Yeah, I know, I understand. For example, here's one, right? For when James logged 165, Tom logged once, I think James logged 165, then Tom logged 166, then Rob Wood logged 167. I think that's the journey of the log record. I think Tom got in between. I don't think James did 166. I think James did 165. Tom Hib, 166. My goal was out of log 170. Now, I logged 170 in 2017, back when I was push pressing. So I logged 170 and back then I was like 91 as well. Like I was just like, I can make 90 like fucking tomorrow. Again, there was no max logs comp comps around in the UK. It's different. It was different back then. You know, nowadays I could DM Luke. Luke, I want to take a log record. Can you fucking set some up at chaos? I'm strong as fuck. Give me two weeks. I'll do it. You know, back then it was like, well, where's, which comps are on? Does anyone have a max login? No. Well, I can't take a record. So I would have taken a record back then if there was comps around, but there wasn't. So then my goal, my vision of like, I want to be the best under 90 kill log presser in the world. To me, and the way I viewed Strongman back then was very much like whether I did it in the gym or whether I did it in a competition, it made no fucking difference to me. Because to me, a competition was just doing a log in a different location. I've still got three, the, the same people are probably watching. It's just my friends. They come, do you know what I mean? It was, it's not like I'm at some big arena or something. And you got to do it under the lights. It's like, well, what fucking lights? The, the sun? Like, you know what I mean? There the, the was nothing. So it was like, I did the one set log and I'm like, well, there's no comps around. It's like, well, well, what next? So back then I set myself a goal and I was like, you know what? I want to strip press the world record. Um, and so I'm not going to take a log of records like and strict it. So then I, I set this new ceiling, this new goal, because back then I had a 130 strict and a 170 push. So I just was like, right, I'm going to fucking strict this thing. So I started out this journey of strict pressing the log. And then there was no, nobody, no one even in open weight really did it, to be honest with you. There was no like, there was nothing for me to look at and go, oh, where can I go? There was no ceiling cap at all. I was just like, I'm going to go on this journey and just see where it ends. And then I've taken it way past the world record. And now I'm like setting my sights on this 200 kilo strict log. So for me, I've removed my ceiling a long time ago because I hit a lot of lifts that surpassed the kind of vision that I had as to where I wanted to go. Like the deadlift as well. Like I always wanted to be able to deadlift um, like uh, 360, 800 pounds. And I pulled 370 like fucking six years ago, some shit, you know, I was aiming for like the 400 kind of thing. So like my, my numbers were all like jumping up and they're, they're going like, like, I've been aiming for a 400 deadlift um, when the world record was like 340. 
in, in strongman, obviously, not in powerlifting. And then now you've got guys like Gav McNamee and Dan Benson and stuff pushing it to like 275, 280, 285, 290, whatever the fuck it is now. So um, those guys have pushed that deadlift record up, but I almost didn't, they've not increased my expectations of where my deadlift can go. I was already aiming like there, if that makes sense, just due to looking at... Um, my numbers and where I've taken them and like what's realistic and being, you know, understanding strength and conditioning and just being realistic with where you can take your strength. Like going from 370 to 400, it's like 30 kilos, but that's like a five year journey. You know what I mean? It's not like it's going to happen overnight or something. Um, so, so yeah, I've removed my ceiling cap and expectations of like stuff many years ago to be honest with you just because like I say I had this vision of getting better than James Ward and then obviously I know it's a little bit different like competing and whatnot but doing doing all the things this is why a lot of people will say I'm one of the strongest in the 90s in the world as well because I've done a lot of things as individuals over the last five six years which is why again I understand when people I understand when people say oh you're not you can't prove you're strong until you compete I, I understand that I get it because a lot of the lifts I've done over the last five, six years when I haven't been able to compete international, they've all been single lifts. Like it's all been like, oh, I'm going to peak my log or oh, I'm going to do this on the stone or oh, I'm going to do this on the deadlift. Putting it together as a full package is a completely different story. The reason why I'm confident within myself as an athlete is I've just always been that guy that's better in comp. Like I just thrive in the moment, you know what I mean? So I don't really consider it a thing, but I understand why people would say, well, it might choke in the moment. I'm like, motherfucker, you know, the opposite in the moment. Like, I am like, I'm in my element when I compete. Like, it's just fun. I get, you get that adrenaline buzz and I do stuff where I'm like, how the fuck did I even do that? <laughs> like, <you laughs> so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, you know, in school, some people are just bad. They know the material, but they're bad at taking tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you're the opposite, but in competition, like, yeah, I've always you, been that way. Just when I went well. to when I went to Northern England Strongest Man in the ninety, the first time that first year, I trained strongman for three months. I was fucking eighteen years old or something, and there was this is a random story for you, but I'm fucking gonna tell you anyway. There was this overhead medley, and it was a keg. Let's press a keg. They had to press a log. Then you had to press a yoke, and then there was a one twenty five kilo fixed rusty bent minging axle at the end. It was like a, it was an 80 keg, a 90 log, a hundred yoke, 125 minging axle. And um, I had a hundred kilo push press. That was my max push press at the time, hundred kilo push press. And this was the first event at the first strongman I've ever done. I'd never even touched an axle before. I never even touched a, a yoke press. I, know, I never touched a keg. I had to learn. They were just like, I touched the log. That was it. And the warm ups, like, do the keg like this. And it was, eight, it was 80, so it wasn't or 70 or something. It was a, a light keg. And there's a video of this on, on YouTube still as well. So it's still on, on video. And um, about 10 days before the comp, my mate Kenny that kind of got me into strongman and helped me a bit with, with training. He was like around my age and he was kind of doing the under 90 scene um, as, as well. He was like, showed me weightlifting and he was like, oh, I know you can't do the axle, but look at this split jerk thing. So 10, 10 days out, I was in the gym practicing split jerks and I went in every single day with 60, 70 kilo and I just kept drilling these split jerks and I was like, right, cool. I think I, think I fucking get it, you know. Um, anyway, I was out towards the end of this overhead medley and nobody pressed the axle. And I pressed this keg, 
press this log, I pressed this yoke, and then I picked this axle up, got it on my belt, did the most disgusting, I don't know if you'd call it a clean, it went from my belt to my shoulders. A this, 125 axle. Yeah, 125 fixed axle, 25 kilo of my max. I got it in rack position. I remember feeling like I was being buried and I popped out, literally, if you watch it on YouTube, the perfect split jerk and split jerk this 125 axle. Um, perfect. And then that was the first, that, this is the thing that got me like hooked on strongman was I'm known for being a bit aggressive post lift and just letting out all my emotion and just going fucking wild. And I'd never done it in my life before. Cause when I was fighting and kickboxing and stuff, we were always taught like calm, you know, don't get let your emotions, you know? So I was always performing in good flow state, but there was never like, I know it's different in a fight. Like when you win a fight, it's not like this one big moment. It's more like we boxed and, you know, usually because we were young, it didn't end in knockout, you know what I mean? It ended on points. So it was like, okay, you win, raise your hand. There wasn't this like, yeah. But when you get a big lift overhead that you just have no right to do, you just <laughs> like, there's this overwhelming sensation of just like pure fucking like, just feelings. And I scream and I'm like, fuck. And then I take my belt off and I just fucking launch my belt and um, just like storm off like fucking wild. And I remember there's a website back then called Sugden where everybody went to like do strongman comps and stuff. It's like a forum. Everybody's like, who the fuck's this wild guy? He's so aggressive and he's so feral. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't even know it was like that. Like, <laughs> I was like, is this me? Like, this is wild. So yeah, that's kind of like an example of just comp day me. You know what I mean? I just thrive, always have, always will. Especially like yoke, that's another one. Like if I, when I pick up a yoke, I mean, I'm good at yoke in training anyway, but yoke in comp, I just completely treat it. In my brain now, I'm like, yeah, there's yoke and then there's yoke in comp. Because no matter how many times I've done it, the same thing happens where I pick it up, it feels like nothing and I sprint. Like my strides are different, my gait's different. I can't do it in the gym, but whatever I do on competition day, uh, it, there's just like a different me. I call it the dragon. Yeah. Like I say there's Shane, Coach Shane, and then there's the dragon. And as soon as the whistle blows, it's full full dragon is, is doing the thing. And sometimes I sit down afterwards and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what the fuck just, I don't know what just happened. <laughs> So yeah, I'm not, you fucking asked me. I don't know either. It doesn't matter though. Um, what do you see as the future of strongman? Like, and, and answer it any way you want, you know, um, just from your perspective, you're a coach, you coach some of the top athletes, you coach, you have coaches who coach other athletes, you know, you have, you see a wide array of stuff, you know, all the different competitions everybody's doing. Um, like, what do you see? or the future of the sport? Well, I'll answer in terms of from what I want to influence because, you know, there's some things that they just be predictions and guesses as to what's going to happen because I'd have no influence on them. But for what I want to see is, um, one of my big passions is obviously it's just strength and conditioning coaching. And what I would like to see, and this is going to sound harsh is, I would like to see the end of strongman coaches personally, and I would like to see the uprise of strength and conditioning coaches because strongman is a sport to which a strength and conditioning coach will extract the best performance out of an athlete. And 
there's it's it's happening already it's it's already happening which is why i know for certain it's gonna in the next five years this is gonna basically what i'm trying to say is you shouldn't be an athlete that excels in a sport and then coach other upcoming athletes and if you have no background basis of strength and conditioning education because all you're doing is teaching someone the path you took to get there this is how i did things this is how i'm going to tell you to do things and that doesn't increase the level of athlete over a period of time the athletes now that are starting strongman that pick the correct coach or the correct um company to work with or whoever you've got to remember the, these athletes a lot of them are coming here with big aspirations and goals of like look i want to i want to make something out of this i want to go world strongest man i want to this i want to that so they they're, they're investing in somebody to to pick the best pathway for them to get to the, the, their goals and the difference between a strength and conditioning coach and a strongman coach is a strongman coach is somebody that excels in the sport and understands and can teach the sport and can teach you how to do stones teach you how to do yoke I'm not denying that they can do those things but a strength and conditioning coach is somebody that can look down the bigger picture and go right over the next five years if you do if you go down this journey you're going to get these dysfunctions these issues and you're going to hit a brick wall uh, so i'm going to put you down this path where you don't do that. And that's how you create an, a, a top level athlete is by having a 10 year journey. And a strongman coach can never see the 10 year journey because they don't understand it. They can just see the specific six weeks. I want to get you this in the next six weeks. I want to get you a better yoke in the next six weeks. I want to improve your stone the next six weeks. And that's good. It works for a long while. Don't get me wrong, it works for a couple of years. You'll think they're the greatest person in the world. But then when you're stuck in a pit that you need dragging out of, you're going to need to find an SNC coach to get you out of the pit. If if we can slowly educate uh, people to pick in the correct coach so that they can get the correct information from the start, then the journey of which people go through will be much different to if they pick the wrong one. And over the last two or three years, what started happening is people with knowledge are starting to get um, more clients and access more people rather than just the big names in the sport and i know that well maybe piss some people off but it's it's just true that there's you know just because somebody's got a big name and social media following and they're good at something doesn't mean they're the best person to learn off or the best person to guide you so what i see for the future strongman is hopefully an increase in strength and conditioning coaches influencing the growth of the athletes over the next 10 years because if we want to see if we want to see like basically every um every decade there especially like if we just look at world strongest man every decade there's a new group of athletes that come through isn't there there's like you had like the sl the, the smaller more athletic fast people like puds and poundstone and stuff and then it went to like the bigger fucking giants and stuff like thor and, and, and brian shaw and now we're getting into this realm where we're kind of blending the two a little bit you got the mitchell hoopers and the novikovs and they've got the static strength but they can move well there's this growth constantly. If we want to see that next, you know, group of athletes be even better than this, be even better than this group, there needs to be, um, there needs to be a, a pathway laid out for this younger generation that, that I'm already working with guys that are like 21, 22 year old freak shows. And I'm so happy that they're, under us because I'm like, I'm going to promise you that I am not just looking at getting you something in the next year. I'm looking at like, how can we manage this guy over the next decade so that his career's 
you know, safe, he's resilient, and we're not getting him into like a bit of a, a pit when he, when he's older. So that, that's really what I want to see. And um, I also want it, it to be my mission to make it so that strongman coaches have the option to accept that they are a strongman coach because they, they 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 don't like to accept it. They like to, I don't know, it's just my opinion, but I just think people, no, no, I know, I know everything. It's like, well, why, why, I don't know everything either. I don't know everything. I know a lot of shit, but I'm happy to say I can still learn, you know? So it, I want to make it so that strongman coaches can go, oh, I want to, I also want to do that. I want to influence the future. I'm going to swallow my ego and I'm going to learn this stuff that I can apply. And that's kind of what I want to help uh, influence over the next five, 10 years is make it so that those strongman coaches can turn themselves into SNC coaches so that they can influence the future of uh, the athletes. Because in my opinion, um, that is what's going to help us get that next group of, you know, level up almost you know what i mean like like you look at the deadlifts now like 10 years ago you had like fucking five people pulling over 400 and nowadays everybody does it there's this constant leveling up going on and we need to look at like how can we level up again in the next 10 years and it's definitely basically the level people are at now you can't wing it you gotta know what you're doing or, or else you're gonna um yeah you're gonna you're gonna struggle to beat the kind of standards that have been set because that's the thing you were saying before about how everyone's always getting stronger and new standards and that. It's not just that, it's the coaching behind it. Coaches are getting better at it, you know what I mean? Especially in powerlifting. You gotta remember powerlifting and uh, and strongman are relatively new in terms of people diving into the programming and science behind it. Weightlifting, a little bit different. Weightlifting's been around for uh, much longer and the coaches, cause it's an Olympic sport, the coaches have had pro, uh, you know, programs and investment and stuff and been able to really build systems to create the greatest athletes in the world. We've not had that yet in strongman. So, and powerlifting, you know, it's kind of getting there a bit in powerlifting. That's a little bit ahead of strongman, but especially strongman, it's behind, it's behind with the times a little bit. Like the information is out there, but the application of the information is rare. Um, so that's what I'd like to see over the next you know, 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's, um, that's definitely, I'm glad you said all that because that's one of the aspects, maybe an aspect that I, thought of notionally but one I overlooked explicitly because I'm not a coach and even you know disclaimer you coach me um and I don't know what I'm doing until I look at the program that day you know and I'm just going okay what am I doing and you know we've talked a bunch and sometimes I I don't necessarily need to understand you know so I think some athletes I really want to understand the program I don't I want to understand why I'm doing something so I can do it well but I, I just don't think of it but it's it's nice you say that because there's there's that which is going to create a better athlete, which is going to create a better performance, which is going to give a higher standard that someone like yeah. Joe is going to take a video of and put it out, and then someone sees it. So there are all these little different things, all these different moving parts that people are um, contributing to to grow the sport. And and, and the, the the term grow the sport gets tossed around a lot. Let's grow the sport. Let's grow the sport. Let's grow the sport. And it I, I think it just sort of gets thrown around and people don't think about what it means. But to me, the growth of a sport is showing someone who's never done the sport what it is. And every time someone new sees it, it's a little bit better because that person might start doing it and then they're going to enter the sport at that level and that's what they think the sport is so they're going to continue that right and then they eventually set a higher standard whether it's a better competition or 
um, a, a better knowledge uh, of movement uh, or just lifting heavier weights. And then and in the future, people see those people doing it and they say, okay, well, that's the standard, right? Um, so, yeah, that's... This, Coaching's this is like... It's weird coaching because there can be like these magical moments that the... Obviously... It's supposed to be this way. The athlete gets all the glory. That's just how it how it should be. But there's these moments that in coaching that you've helped to influence said moment. Like for example, someone that's had like a bad hip and they've not been able to do something. And you've spent six weeks doing all this stuff, working around, changing positions, changing techniques, all this stuff. And then the athlete goes and performs and the thing that was bothering the hip the most, they absolutely smash. And they create this moment that, again, Joe could capture that on film. Someone can see that and be like, wow, this is great. All the behind the scenes work that goes into that moment, there's lots of different moving parts. There's not just the coaching, there's the nutritionist, there's the, uh, the physio, the recovery side of stuff. All these things might have been like ramped up and, and amped up a little bit to fix whatever issues going on to create that moment. Whereas if all these other moving parts weren't there, that moment might not have happened because they would have been injured and not been able to perform. So it, it's really great that um, we get to create these moments as, as coaches. And and the, I, I do look at coaching as such a big influence on the sport. That's why I take it quite serious. That's why it pisses me off when people do bad jobs because I'm like, if you do a bad job and you admit and you're like, fuck, I fucked up, I'm going to get better. Sweet. That's just how it should work. But if you do a bad job and then don't accept it's a bad job and think it's a good job, it really annoys me because I'm like, you're, you are having an impact on the sport. Like you might not see it that way, but all the athletes you're training, you could have one diamond there that you don't even know and you could get them injured or they could be overtraining or whatever. And they think oh, I'm shit at this. And then they, they quit. Whereas there are so many diamonds that you that sometimes take years to show that we have to just make sure that we understand how important our job is because we, we, we could be the people that are building the next generation of athletes up that are going to then go into a big show. They're going to get on, on a film and have a magical moment and they're going to influence some other person to start. And then it's this big circle. And that's why it's growing so well at the moment is because of people like Official Strongman and Joe and stuff being able to present those perform like it's much more accessible to see now isn't it those moments you can you can see the uh because strongman is a fast sport isn't it like some magical moments happen in 15 seconds so you can it's easy to flick through an instagram reel and be like oh fuck that was cool but but 10 weeks has gone into that <laughs> little yeah. moment uh so yeah I, I think that that coaching's a big moving part in in growing the sport for sure because it just influences everything yeah you and i have talked about this before um you know my my job in strongman as an athlete um is just being an athlete you know that's obviously that's the way i see it i, I don't i don't do much else besides that i do what i'm told and, and then i do it and, and then that's it right um and there's obviously odd objects and i try to i'm trying to like put something beautiful into the sport um on another end just so it's a little bit more varied but um the, the athlete side of it, and I know you feel this way about uh, coaching, is I look at it as, a, as like an art form, like a creative process. You know, um, 
if 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 the 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 move the movement that I do or the lift that I do or like the bag toss moment I had with Andrew Haynes that Joe captured, like that's going to live in the history of the sport of strongman forever, uh, unless you know the servers get deleted and the clip gets lost forever. But you know, in people's imaginations, it, it'll still be there for a while. So I look at it like that. I'm just like, wow, I I am a part of the sport. Like I it, in the whole sport of strongman, I am a part of it. And then that's really beautiful. I made history. I'm a part of history. And if you backtrack that a little, it's like, okay, well then all the training I did is a part of that history too. And if you backtrack that even more, it's like, well, every rep I did. And it's like, oh, every time I thought about going to sleep early, um, every time I said, oh, you know, I need to make sure I get enough protein or whatever it is. Every time I worked with my coach and, and, you know, he said, you know, you got to do more trap three raises, (laughs) you know, like, like that. If you think about it like that, like, you identified something in my work of art that was missing. You said, here's a brush stroke that's missing. It's a, it's a fucking trap three. You don't have yeah. one. And, and now like you're teaching me how, how to, how to create that little, that little piece of beauty. And, and because of that, that's going to influence the rest of my work of art, right? The next, the rest of my, um, uh, the canon or whatever the fuck it is. Um, and I, I don't know if I have a question there or not, but I just, it's, 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 it's cool to hear that because, no, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, pro- programming's got to be creative as well. It's like, yeah, it's just like the human body and strongman are so um, intricate that you got to be super creative with your work. And um, it's not like powerlifting or weightlifting where there's three three things, two things you're playing with. There's like fucking fifty. So um, it, it's um, athletes need to be creative. That's why most athletes are a little. You know, a little wild and the best coaches are all in my opinion every every like really good strength conditioning coach i've met is just a little bit weird like they're just the, they've just got something about them that's a little bit weird i don't it's weird though because I, I i think i'm normal but i reckon maybe everyone else is like that guy's fucking a bit strange but like max mccall i, I like max mccall he's a really good coach um but his personality, he, he's just a little funky, you know. And then, uh, and then Tom Hibbert as well. He's got a very specific personality type that's yeah. unique. Yeah. Um, and just yeah, all, all these all these coaches I've met over the years, they're all got that. They've got a creative side to him, and I think cre- creativity always comes with. Um, I don't know what the word is like. Well, it's usually either autism or bipolar disorder. <laughs> <laughs> I think is. Yeah. Yeah, that, autism is the ultimate strength training trait, isn't it? So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if <laughs> anyone that's anyone that's slightly strong needs to be able to stick to a specific routine. And if you're autistic, you, you you've got the uh, the ultimate cheat code to to do that for like a decade. <laughs> so before we ended chatting and got to our breakfast, I asked Shane if there was anything else he wanted to talk about. He said there wasn't, but we talked for another ten minutes. And I'm glad we did because I just love this last little story. Yeah, I think I think the competition thing was a good question. That was the only thing I wanted to do because I get asked that so many times. Why don't you compete? Why don't you compete? And I'm just like, oh, I have <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it just uh, yeah, that was the only thing I really wanted to um, 
to, to go over to, to be honest with you because that's just it's such a common question and when people ask me in my dms i'm like it's not really a you know i don't really have 30 minutes mate to yeah. you know to, to to go over this uh because it's like such a, a random subject there's probably other other reasons as well there's so many things that have happened to me in in the sport of the years that have just not sat well with me like fucking another one arnold's under 80. i should be world's strongest man under 80. it was arnold's but i fucking slipped on a there was like a liter of have you been have you been to the Arnold? I mean, I've been to Strongman Corporation shows. And yeah, but you know, the floor's like a specific floor in that um, in that um, Ohio place that they do it. It's like a, a floor that you put water on it. It's fucking slippy, and I um, was again videos on YouTube. We're doing this as a medley. I was in first place going into the last event. And top five went through, or top four, whatever, went through to day two on the main stage. And, I, and it's you got to run with a keg, run back, run with a keg, put it in this wheelbarrow, maybe three kegs or something, and then run the wheelbarrow across the line. They said, wheelbarrow's got across the line. You're done, that's sweet. I put the last keg in the wheelbarrow and everybody else was just at the keg. I then run with the wheelbarrow and going in a perfectly straight line, perfectly fine, just cruising along, like, I'm way in the lead, don't need to go too fast. Just cross the line. Um, and then suddenly I fucking just slip and just like lose balance. And because I'm like, I mean, I consider this a great expression of skill and strength, but it fucked me the show. I just somehow in the moment adjusted and went backwards. I just, and I just spun, the wheelbarrow spun around and I'm losing my footing and slipping. And I spun around 180 and I just walked back. I didn't drop it. I just walked backwards across the line, did the last 10 meters backwards and dragged the wheelbarrow across the line and just fucking walk off smiling and laughing like, can't believe Again, one of the moments where I'm like, I don't know how the fuck I just did that, but I just did that. <laughs> and then I sit down on the bench and the guy that uh, was the Aussie guy that I was kind of like sharing a room with was like, you fucking, you're a freak. How the hell did you do that? I crossed that mountain. Fucking no, I just went backwards across the line and they come over. They're like, um, sorry, um, the front wheel needs to cross the line. I'm like, mate, fucking 95% of the wheelbarrows across the line. And the, the handles were up against uh, a barrier. Yeah. So I couldn't, I had to walk over, pick the wheelbarrow up, spin it round forward and push it like two, two millimeters across the line. And, uh, because of that, I lost like 45. I came last in the event, um, basically. And, and 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 I said to her, I was like, I slipped on this and there was literally somebody had dropped a water bottle and there was like a full liter of water puddle in the middle of my lane. And I did see it when I was running the kegs and run. I ran around it when I was doing the kegs and I did note to self it's there. But the wheelbarrow goes straight. You know what I mean? Like I was yeah. going through, I couldn't, I couldn't swerve around it. And I didn't expect it to be as slippy as what it was. <laughs> so that was like another moment where I was like, come on, Dion, there, there's got to be something here. Like, you know, there's got to be something like, I, I clearly won the event by 20 seconds. If there wasn't a barrier there, it would have, the front wheel would have crossed the line. You never said front wheels got across the line. You said wheelbarrow across the line. Just cross the line, just break the line. Just break the line, that's what the rule was. Um, I said, plus I've got fucked over with this water. I was like, what's going on? But it's like, no, sorry, you came 29th. 
And I was just like, it, the, little things like that. And that Arnold, I'm like a 21 year old lad who's got a shitty little job making like a grand a month or something. And I've just spent every single penny I had to go out to the Arnold and, and, and do this world championship. And then, um, yeah, the following year, I could have gone back that year, but I didn't have the money. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I, back then it was like, I was spending every single penny I had. So, so things like that just didn't, there's a lot of moments that have happened that didn't, that annoyed me a little bit where I'm just like, makes me think, fuck, why did I just put all this money and effort and time into this thing? And then you get these little moments like that, that, that kind of just make you think, what the fuck's the point? Yeah, I mean, we, we could record another hour and a half or two hours on rules at shows and the way promoters generally treat people at shows. There, there's a, a real common thing that during a rules meeting, like you feel like you're being yelled at. You know, like, why am I already, why am I in trouble? Like, I remember thinking that, like, at my first, at my first few shows, I was like, you know, I didn't start Strongman until I was 33. So, like, I'm a 35-year-old man being like, yelled at about like if you drop something break it you're fucking out of here like you know just like and then they're also like we're everybody needs to move fast we need to get out of here as soon as possible like i just spent like eight to twelve weeks training for this i don't mind yeah if, why are you in a rush yeah we <laughs> could take we could take some time it's fine but anyway yeah uh just one more thing that in that circle i think of fee the feedback loop of the growth of the sport is uh people promoting more seriously which make athletes feel more serious so therefore athletes will be, start to behave more seriously it's therefore, just you want the promoter to understand what the athlete's been through you know what i mean like that promote some promoters will just wake up in the morning of the comp oh, fuck, i run this comp today you know or, or like they forget they forget they've even put it on and then and then the monday before the comps on the weekend the monday before right fuck, i've got to sort all this shit I need to get loaders and this like they rush it in a week they forget that the athlete's been dreaming about it you know waking up thinking about it hitting the meals they've, they've paid for a, a nutritionist they've paid for a, a coach they, they might have done a little water cut like every single minute of the day up to a competition you get that comp mindset don't you where you're just fully invested so then when you turn up on the day and some guy's fucking shunning you you're like mate like why am i doing the sport the f yeah what the f why have i just put all this effort in for this like am i in the wrong am I, am I fucking weird like what's going on and then that's kind of because because so many moments like that happened like event changes another one you train for a fucking comp for eight weeks perfecting something perfecting a technique mastering something oh sorry it's uh front hold now front hold what the fuck like that happens in the uk so much and then the amount of time because i used to compete so much the amount of times it happened it just like each one's like a little bit of a dig you know what i mean and they don't bother you at first but after a while you're just like why, the fuck, why am i doing this so when people say why have i not competed i'm like well i've had a hundred bad experiences of, yeah. of competing in this country uh and and and, and international as well um so so yeah I'm rambling about the same question now. <laughs> so, if you can strict press the log world record, are you better than the record holder? Consider this. The nature of competition changes over time. Even the quality of competitions can vary greatly from one show to another. We've heard plenty of that in this episode. 
So if we're not even all doing the same stuff, what does being the best even mean? Why is this question so important to us? I know it's important to me, maybe too important. I have so many questions I want answered, like, is it possible to be your best self? Or can you only be as good as what you think is possible? When you surpass your own vision of yourself, what lies beyond that? Is it even possible to reach the true limit of human potential? Or is that just a rubric of self-reflection? A somewhat abstract way to judge ourselves against the theoretical asymptote of perfection. I didn't go into this conversation expecting to walk away with so many questions, but here I am. I want to thank Shane for taking the time to talk with me and share his story. It was fun hearing about this little universe in England before social media where some of the best strongmen in the world were being created. What a wild time that must have been. If you want to learn more about Shane, check out his Instagram, MST Systems. And if you're a coach and want to learn how to be an even better one, there are courses you can take. There's an amazing app you can use to build a program if you're an athlete. He gives away a ton of free information, and he's just always nailing things on the head. My personal favorite is one where he says it's okay to go off program. Probably rubbed some people the wrong way, but I sure appreciated it. As for me and all these questions I have, well, I better get to work because I want answers. I'll see you on the next one.